Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for stopping in. If this is your first time, this is Gospel Saving Church, and I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. Uh, I hope you came to church today to hear the Word of God. Same as I hope that you who tuned in online, coming from SoundCloud or any kind of podcast site or wherever you're at on the Internet, I, I hope you came and you tuned into this sermon today to hear the Word of the Lord, not just to be entertained. Uh, there's so many today love to just be entertainers. And you know, there is a time and a place for that. We have times that we go to the movies or times that we go to the, you know, to watch an opera or times that we go watch a play. And those are the times that we ought to be seeking that entertainment. We should not be seeking, if we really love the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not be seeking entertainment from the people that are supposed to be teaching us the Word of God. So I hope that that is why you are here today, because that is what you're going to get today. You're going to hear the Word of the Lord today. You're not going to hear entertainment. I'm not going to be your entertainer, and I'm not going to be your actor. I'm going to be your pastor and your teacher and your mentor. So anyway, this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. If you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, please. We always ask the Lord to bless our message and help us understand the things that He has to tell us today, for we know that the Word says we can only understand the things of God by the Spirit of God. So we have to Let's ask and, and see if the Lord will help us understand His Word today by His Spirit. Lord, we thank You so much for bringing us here today, Lord. We thank You so much for Your Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord God. We thank You, Lord God, that we have a standard, Lord, as Christians. We, we thank You, Lord God, that even if, even if somebody that's listening is not a Christian, Lord, the Bible, Lord God, is still the standard. Lord, it's not society, or it's not my own feelings, or it's not how I may think, or my opinions. Lord, we have a standard of truth, Lord, and that is your word. For your word is infallible, it's prophetic, it's, it's genius, Lord. It, it's written by the greatest genius of all the world. Lord God, you breathe through mankind. For Father God, there's no way the things in the Bible could be there the way they are and how amazingly detailed it is and how prophetic it is, knowing the future when no man knows the future, Lord God. Thank you so much, Lord God, for how awesome it is, Lord, and that it is a standard that we can trust. We ask, Lord God, that you'd help us understand your word today by your Holy Spirit. Father God, we know we can't understand it unless you reveal it to us. So, Lord, we ask and we plead with you, Lord. And I ask and I plead with you to reveal it to those listening out there, Lord God, all throughout the whole world. Lord, touch their hearts. Show them who you are. Reveal yourself to the people that are listening to me today, Lord God. As you were to the Athenians, Lord, you were the unknown God that Paul makes known today. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in the mighty and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you want to open up your Bibles today, we're going to be at Acts chapter 17. Again, we're going to finish the chapter this week as this is our ongoing through Acts. We were in Acts 17 now for the last two, two or three times that we've been in Acts 17. We went out of it for a little bit, but we're going to finish it today, Acts 18, next week. Give you a moment to get there. Acts 17, again, 16 through 34 are the verses. The title of our sermon today, as I prayed there, for all those of you listening online, you already know it, those in, in my home in McKinney, Texas, you don't, but it, the title today is Making the Unknown God Known. And that's when I prayed, Paul to the Athenians makes the unknown God, statue that they had of an unknown God, he makes him known. 
So I'm going to read Acts 17, 16 through 34. If you guys want to read along with me, you can. If you just want to listen, that's fine also. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, starting there. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of that divine of to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So remember, right before this, Paul was preaching Christ in the city of Berea. Remember, those were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica as they searched the word daily to see what Paul had to say. And he was in Berea with, with this heaven, this great outcome of preaching the gospel with Timothy and Silas. And remember, some angry Jews come from the city of Thessalonica, where he had just ministered before Berea, and they came to try to subvert God's work, you know, of course, turn the people away from the Jesus Christ that he was preaching to them. And of course, they were also there to kill and attack Paul. His fellow Christians in Berea learn of these evil-hearted Jews coming, and to protect them, they send him away to Athens, Greece, with a bodyguard, basically. They sent him with a guy to, down to the sea and over to even Greece, but not 
his helpers. That's where they, they stayed behind. That's where we find him today in verse 16. Paul realizes, remember at the end of 15, I think, I don't know why Luke wrote it that way, but the end of 15, end of verse 15, Paul, Paul realizes that, hey, I shouldn't be ministering here alone. He had Luke, remember. Luke was there just to record, but he didn't have his real helpers. So he calls for his helpers, end, end of verse 15, and they come and they join him. Now, picking up in verse 16, that's where we open up with Paul. While he waited for them which is the verse, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given to idols. Now, so while he waited for them to get there, his spirit was provoked. What does that mean? That means that his spirit was stirred up. Have you ever had those feelings before? You see something and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to do something about this situation. Oh no, look at what's going on here. And I'll say his spirit was provoked or stirred up within him out of love. And why was it out of love? Well, because he saw that the city, so the people there in the city, were, going, were giving themselves over to idols or statues. And so, and so with that, of course, headed to hell. These weren't born-again Christians in the city. They were very idolatrous. And by the way, when he says the city was given over to idols, he really wasn't kidding. Greece as a whole, especially Athens, was home to lots of different false pagan Greek gods, which these people had made statues of and altars to so that they could worship them. Right? When you have an altar or a statue to worship a false god, it gives you it gives you something real to attach yourself to. And what you're really worshiping is you're really worshiping that statue or that or that altar. You're not really worshiping God because that God at that statue or, or altar belongs to doesn't exist. So really, you, you want you're you're just attaching yourself to something that you can touch and say, "Oh, I'm worshiping that." But but here here's what Paul had seen, what what he would would have seen that provoked his spirit or or rose his spirit up within him while he waited for Timothy and Silas to get their statues and altars to most of these Greek gods. We'd have Zeus in there, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Ares. We all know that these are very popular names even today in kids shows. Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, which would be Aphrodite, Hermes, Dionysius, Hades, we know that's a very popular one, Uh, Hypnos, Nike, I wonder if that's where the brand of shoe gets their name from, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised at all, Janus, Nemesis, Iris, and a few others that I could not pronounce in my research. My research of these false pagan gods of the Grecians were, came out to somewhere around 21. They were polytheistic. They believed in worshiping a, a, a multitude of gods versus just a one god, as Paul was a monotheistic fella, which means he believed in one god. Anyway, you can see now with over 21 gods, right, 21 idols or altars, and most of them having altars or statues of gods, you could see how Paul's spirit would have been arisen up in him because, oh my gosh, look at all these, these people are just given over to these all these false gods. Oh my gosh, these people there worship these false gods and were headed to hell because of it. And Paul loved them and he wanted to save them. And of course, seeing all this certainly shook him again, because as I said, he was monotheistic. He believed in Jehovah, one God. And believing with all his heart that there was only one true living God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind, what does Paul do when his spirit is risen up within him for his love for these people? Verse 17, therefore, 
He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those that happened to be there. He goes into the synagogue, first of all. And what does he do? Number one, he starts hitting up the Jewish believers of, of his own heritage. Then he, he hits up, as they're there, the Gentile peoples who had converted to Judaism, which would have been in those synagogues because there were always Gentile uh, worshipers that kind of converted, right? And number three, what did he do last? He went to the busiest places. He went to the marketplaces. He went to our grocery stores. He went to the, to the bazaars. He went to the flea markets, you could say, as we would think of it in our day today. He went to the busiest places where there would be the most amounts of congregated masses of people and he did it to reason with them or we've heard that word right over our past few weeks and especially in Acts 17 he did it to prove to them uh, Jesus was the Christ and and of course to turn them away from the worship of false gods of the Grecian culture which could not be proven right and to turn them to the worship of the one true living God Jesus Christ so that they may be saved now, Christians, a word for today for all of us. Nothing, if we look at it, especially those I'm going to talk to right now in America, you Christians in America that I'm speaking to right now, people have not changed. Nothing's really changed except for the names of the false gods, have they? Americans and many people that even professing people that know Jesus, they don't really worship Jesus Christ. You see by their lifestyles, whom they worship. The names of these false gods that they worship haven't changed, but they're gods nonetheless. Uh, people today worship money. <laughs> you could see it by how much they go to work and what they do to get it. They worship houses and cars and TVs and drugs and, and even work. I used to be a worshiper of work. Before I knew Jesus Christ, I lived my whole life, basically my primary part of my life at my job. I worked seven days a week before I got saved. I had been working seven days a week. I worked, I loved work because it gave me, it got me away from the responsibility of being a good husband and a good father. I was a deadbeat jerk before Jesus Christ. And so I worshiped work and I worshiped all those things that I just mentioned there, money and TV and how my house and all these things. And I, and I, as the people today that are all around us as, as, as true worshipers of Jesus Christ, they're still headed to hell because they refuse to, to worship Jesus Christ. They reject him as their Lord because they, they want to worship all these other false gods. And because of this Christians, Real Christians out there, those that are born again that I'm speaking to, those that are on the path, surrendered to Christ, our spirit should be stirred up within us with love for the people that we live around, that they don't worship Ares or Zeus, they worship the greenback. They worship the, the, the 11-foot ceilings or the 12-foot ceilings. They worship the Mercedes-Benz and, and the Corvettes and, 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 the, and the BMWs that are in the garage. That's what, that's what they worship. Our spirit should be riled up for them for love. And we should be imitating Paul's actions here. For guess what? There's only still one true Savior of mankind. And it ain't your BMW or your Corvette. And it ain't your house. And it ain't your greenback that you're living for. Or, or that people of the world are living for. It's Jesus Christ. And none of those things can grant you eternal life. Only Jesus Christ. So, so if you're real and you really love Jesus, 
We really need to have hearts stirred up or, or be praying that God would stir up our hearts for the peoples that are around us that are worshiping these false gods. And, and we need to start reasoning with them and, and, and seeking for them to be saved as Paul did here in Athens with those there. And that's just the word. Uh, that's Jesus' great commission in Matthew or in Mark 16 15. Go ye therefore in all earth and preach the gospel. Reason with people. Jesus said that. Paul reasoned with people. Paul proved Jesus Christ. That's part of the gospel. Proving that you could trust the Bible. Proving that you could trust Jesus Christ. That he's not just another one of the false pagan gods that are out there, like the people already worship. Anyway, please, Christians, get out there. Get busy. Pray to God to give you a heart. If you don't have a heart, pray to God to give you a heart. To reach these people, to, to stir up yourself in, in, in love and good works toward others and reach them for Jesus Christ. Anyway, getting, getting back to our scripture here. Look, look at verses 18 through 21 as Paul is going through this and he's reaching these people. And look, what it, look what our Bible says this. That then, as he's doing this, so right in the middle as he's fulfilling the Great Commission, God drops a divine appointment right in his lap. Look at verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? They hear him, but you know, they're like, what the heck is this guy saying? I don't, you know, huh? What? This guy's crazy, but but you know, maybe, you know, I mean, this, this guy, you know, you know what he'd be good for? Uh, well, actually, let's go on. What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seemed to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. This is when he went out, when he was in the world, he was preaching the unknown God of the Athenians by name, right, and, and his resurrection. And so this divine opportunity hits him right smack in the face. They hear him. What does this babbler want to say? They're like, you know what? This guy's out here. Let's, let's, let's. Give him the stage where people actually might appreciate what he's saying. And so verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, uh, May we know what this new doctrine of yours that you speak is, for, we are, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. So they they like, hey. You know, let's bring this guy to a place where this is what people do here. This is people come to this spot in the Areopagus, and it was just a, an open forum where anybody could stand up and say, "Hey, this is what I believe." Hey, listen to me about this, and whatever they wanted to do. Philosophers, you know, religious people, anti the devil following, whoever you were, you could come to this open forum. I kind of wish we had one like this today here in America, a place like this here in America where people could just discuss openly with without bias things that they believe, whether they're right or they're wrong, because you know, in that kind of forum, really the truth could really shine. But the divine opportunity that is offered to Paul here is the stage to preach on notice. He got, basically, they gave him his own stage to say, here, tell us all. And there could have been several hundred people here. And they would have all, as somebody stood up to say, hey, I've got something here for you, they all would have been listening. And that's what we really see here as we move on in our scripture. Most of the time, I've tried to talk to people about Christ. They shut me down. They're like, get out of here, man. We don't want to hear that. I, I've been to malls before where I'd walk into a group of like, or I should say I'd walk up to a group of, let's say, you know, 10, 15, 20 teens. And I'd, I'd walk in, and this has literally happened to me. And I'd walk up into this group with 10 or 15 or 20 teens. And I'd be like, hey, man, hey, guys, what's going on? Hey, can I talk to you about Jesus Christ today? And when I was a kid, 
I'll never forget this. We were kind of on the you know, lower middle side. We lived in some apartments that weren't so great. And so some of the apartments that we lived in when I was a kid, they kind of had these roaches, infestations of roaches. Well, I remember walking in late at night as I'd go to get my late night snack and I'd flip the light switch on to the kitchen. And there they were all over the counter. But then as soon as the light switch went on, they would all scatter like... They would all scatter like roaches, you know, with the lights turned on. Well, as I walked in, as I've walked in the past into these kids, these 15, 20, 30, whatever the word, teenage kids, and I said, "Hey guys, you want to talk about Jesus?" It was like I, it was like I flipped the switch on the light, and and the roaches scattered, and and they ran away. And so that that's what's happened to me. But Paul here gets a divine opportunity. He gets a divine stage to preach Jesus Christ. What does he do with this divine opportunity? He preaches a sermon, and boy, oh boy. What a sermon. Does he teach us some awesome things about God? Let's look at his sermon, verses 22, 23. Let's start. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens. He addresses his audience. Hey, guys, welcome to Gospel Saving Church. How are you doing today? Well, he addresses his audience here, too. He says, I perceive, so I see, that in all things you are very religious. Very religious. These guys were worshipers of false gods. What do you mean, very religious? Well, the word religious just means that you're a worshiper. You worship something. You or you or you do you do something continuously. Like I religiously put on my seatbelt in my car every time. I religiously drink coffee when I get up in the morning. The, these people were religious. They weren't religious in the right way, but they were very religious. Verse 23. For as I was passing through, and he kind of tells them now what he saw earlier, what the scripture told us, but he kind of verbalizes it now. Verse 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, and this is when his heart got stirred up, his spirit got stirred up, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he's, he's, his audience, he's got his audience focus. Hey, oh, we're religious. That kind of would have got their attention. Hey, we're very religious. Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah you know, when people feel religious, they kind of get their nose sticking up and they kind of think, oh, yeah, I can listen to this. Yeah, what you got to say? We're very religious. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? I saw all your object worship, but you know, I want to I want to just talk to you today about this one that you have, this one altar that I, the one that says to the unknown God. See, the title of the sermon, Making the Unknown God Known. This is what he starts to do here. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Uh, he, he starts to uh, talk about all their altars, and he says, hey, I got one here that I saw. One that I, one that he's my God kind of thing, but you guys worship him, but you don't know. And, and right in the midst of his opening there, he starts to preach Christ to them, but he does it in a way that you may not expect. Why? As I go through this, you're going to see that he never here, he had before this, as he was preaching to the people outside of the Areopagus, he, he had preached Jesus and the resurrection, but you're going to see that he never uses the name Jesus Christ once in his sermon here. He never even gives the entire gospel but he reveals Jesus Christ in a mighty and powerful way uh, to them here. So, so right in, here in Paul's opening to the sermon, he tells them that they were so very religious and they even worshipped a God that they knew existed, but they didn't know his name, right? People innately know that Jehovah, that Jesus Christ is real, and they may even honor him in a way, but they may not even know his name. And this is true for even Pakistani people and Israeli people and Iranian people. They kind of know who God is innately, 
but they just may not know his name, and that's kind of the people here. They, they knew who God was innately, but they didn't know his name. So they didn't know who he was and his characteristics, because that's what really makes a person who they are, right? Their characteristics. And this is why we see here Paul's going to make the unknown God known to them. He's going to give them his characteristics and some awesome characteristics that they are here. Now look at what Paul tells them about their unknown God that they worship without knowing. Look at verse 24. God, or you could say this God, who made the world and everything in it. Notice now he's already given God one characteristic. Hey, everything you see, this unknown God that I'm proclaiming to you now, the one you worship without knowing, he made everything. Everything you see, he made, right? Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, then that, that tells us now that this God, this unknown God that he's proclaiming, is the one true God of all the heavens and all the earth. And, and he tells him here, third characteristic, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Hey, he, he's God. He, he's everywhere, really. He, he's not, he's not, uh, he doesn't live in one certain place. He, he's everywhere. He starts out very broad, notice. He says, this unknown God that you worship, let me tell you, he's the one that made the whole world and everything in it. Oh yeah, and he doesn't live in temples made with hands. Or, or you could say the way they would have understood it, statues, right? That he doesn't live in these statues. He's not one of these statues that you could worship. Paul states to them here what God says of himself in Isaiah 66 plus many other places, but just one for our sermon today. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things, what would you say, all creation, my hand has made. And God is bigger, I think, than any one of us really understand that he is. Look what he says next. And look at what all seriousness, because he says something here that should humble every one of us. Verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He tells them and us that God does not need one person in the whole world. He doesn't need us. Like he's not dependent on us to exist or to have a being. He's not in need of one single solitary thing from any person to exist, period, the end. Uh, the reason is because he is the very source of life. He is the very provider of, of everything to all. Isn't it so true? Paul says here that if nothing in all creation existed, speaking of angels, me, you, our dogs, our cats, our birds, our plants, our trees, the, world, the earth itself, that God would still exist for he is in himself, this, this phrase, that I love this phrase, he is all sufficient. Paul adds of, of this unknown God to them, known to us by the name of Jesus Christ and Jehovah. In Colossians 1.17, speaking of uh, this unknown God, X, that he's speaking about here in Acts 17, in him all things consist. That's true power, ladies and gentlemen. I don't, I don't care what you think is powerful, your, your blender, your car, your razor, your, you think you have power in this world. Nothing is powerful like this kind of powerful God. Th think of it. Nothing can exist, right? In him all things consist. He holds everything together. Wow. I just was praying this morning, 
And God just drops this on my heart to, to, to tell you now. Often I think of eternity. And I think what it's going to be like in eternity. And I think, oh, you know, what, what's God going to have me do? And I'll, I'll be with him. And, you know, I, I can't kind of get past most of the time. I can't get back past the fact that I'm just going to be in his presence. Just, just being in God's presence makes me just, wow, I get to be in God's presence. Oh, man, I wonder how long I get to stay there. You know, and I, I, I said the other thing. But this morning, he gave me a new aspect. And I wasn't even thinking about this verse. I was just thinking about, yeah, I guess I was thinking about this verse. How all things, how in him all things consist. That means all things in him are held together. All things are held together in him. Well, we'll just think. If all things are held together in him, that means that before the creation of the world, all things were held together. That means whatever he had going on then. Then after he created everything, then he holds it together, us, the trees, everything. That means if he, if he withdrew his power, we would all go poof, and none of us would be held together anymore. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Think about then in the forever. If you love Jesus, and you're going to be in his presence forever, even then... When we're in his presence, in our resurrected new life, new world bodies, when he makes a new heavens and a new earth, as the Bible says, even then, because then, I, you know, it's easy to think as, you're, as you love Jesus, and say, oh, I'm eternal. Yeah, I'm eternal. I'm an eternal being. And, you know, I'm there and I'm eternal. Well, well guess what? And this is what I saw in my, my devotion time this morning. We're only that eternal being because even at that point, God's power is still holding us together. And, and at that time, if he were to say, you know, oh, you know I'm, I don't want to do this anymore, then even our resurrected bodies and our, our souls that, that are, were supposed to be eternal, poof, that's it. They'd be gone. So even then, all things will consist in him. In him, all things consist. That just blows my mind. That's true power. On this aspect of power, look at verse 26. Let's keep going. That wasn't in my notes. I'll try to shorten up another section. I just wanted to share that with you guys. It's God laid it on my heart. Verse 26. And, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Now, now in Paul's sermon, he starts out being very broad, telling them about their unknown God, but now it gets a little bit more personal and, and a little bit more personal to who they are, right? God who made heaven and earth. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's God who made heaven and earth and he rules over all. But now, you know what? I'm going to tell you what. He's the one from every nation whom people on the face of the earth dwell. What did he tell them? He, he told them what the Bible says in Genesis 3.20. Adam calls his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Her li name literally means translated as life or living, uh, right? So he tells them that this unknown God of theirs is their father. For he's the creator of the people that live in all the nations all over the world. He's that creator, of, that God. So he's your father. In verse 28, remember, he's going to tell us, we'll skim it over later, that even the poets agree that he is their divine creator. He is their, like, father of creation. Uh, look at the next personal info that he tells them of their unknown God. Look at verse 26, or the rest of verse 26, I should say. And so not only is, are, of all the people, been created in all the world from Adam, from, 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 created from one blood, but he has determined there, all, that would be all the peoples of the world, pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What does that mean? That means that everybody all over the world, no matter who you are, 
Ed and John and Bob and Larry and Sue and Jenny, even your grandmother and your grandfather. What does that mean? That means that he created you and them for a specific time in the world and for a sp- and in a specific place. That's pretty interesting, right? That's uh that's some intimate knowledge isn't it? He didn't just create you and say, oh, I'll just send you out whatever time you land in, you land in. He said, here, I create you in this specific time and in this specific place. Wow. So their unknown God was not only great and powerful holding all things together, the creator of everything, even being the father to all who lived, plus sustaining all life, not needing anything from anyone to exist, But he also tells them that their unknown God is also responsible for creating and placing every single person whom he had ever made and is making currently since the beginning of all creation in certain time periods in history and even choosing where they were to live. Which means that God actually meddles in the affairs or the businesses of mankind. Some people believe in our world that God just kind of created things and then he just let us all go on our our way and then just, you know, said, hey, you know, take care of yourselves and I'm out. I'm out of the picture. I'm just going to kind of gaze on and look on. But here we see a God that's actually interactive in the lives of people. The unknown God that Paul preached to them is interactive in our lives. Wow. Choosing the very time that we're born and where we're born in our lives to and what city or what country or what region or whatever. And that just blow your mind. That this, this is awesome, right? It's an awesome God. Moving forward, there's one big question we must ask ourselves as to upon what Paul just said there, especially the last part of verse, uh, verse 26. Why does the unknown God do this to people? Why does he create us for certain times and certain places? Why would this great and mighty and all-powerful, all-sufficient creator God who needs no one or nothing to exist and supplies all things to all people he created of whom holds all creation together by his mighty power, why would he meddle in the affairs of mankind and decide what time periods we live in and even what geographic locations we live in or were born in? Is it because he's some evil God who elects or chooses whom he chooses to be saved and then leaves the rest to just burn in hell with no choice? Or is it because he he loves to control mankind like a person uh, playing a game of chess, you know, would control the pawns and the rooks and the bishops and the knights and etc.? Well, you be the judge. Look at what Paul tells them because he actually answers our question in verse 27, our next verse. He says that God did all those things so that they should seek the Lord, speaking of people, in the hope that they might grow for him and find him, though he's not far from every one of us. Yes, you heard me right. Paul just told them that their unknown God actually desires, not forces, mankind to know him in a personal way. And it's not because he's evil, because an evil person would force somebody to love you. When a man rapes a woman, it's not because he really loves her. It's because he just wants to do what he wants to do, and that's evil. Well, God, if he made us do things and made us worship him, made us choose him, that would be an evil God. But here, God says that he made us in certain times and in certain places, and the fact that he'd hope 
that we choose him. There's our choice, whether we choose God, choose to accept his calling on our lives, or we reject his calling on our lives. Now, I know earlier that Paul preached that God didn't need anything or anyone to exist, for he's all-sufficient. And this is true, right? God is all-sufficient and needed nothing to exist. But, but now we just learned that just because he's, just because he's all-sufficient, uh, God doesn't need anyone to exist, and he's, self, he's self-sustaining. He does desire and even cause people to live in certain times in history and in certain geographic locations because he hopes that all people whom he created will grow up for him so that we would find him. Uh, now that should humble you. That should really, really humble you. Well, why should it humble you? Because God doesn't force you to have a relationship with him. He puts you in certain places and sets everything up so that he hopes that you will choose him, but he doesn't force you. He's hoping by making you in a certain place and making you for a certain time, that you'll come and you'll grow for him so that you'll have a relationship with him. This is, after all, why God created mankind even in the first place. If you remember, if you're familiar with your Bible, and you read of Adam and Eve in the, in the new creation when God created the earth and he created Adam and Eve, but before he had created Eve, it was just Adam. And the Bible says that he walked with him in the cool of the Eve, which means that shortly after God created Adam, He was right there with him, basically walking with him, talking with him. What does that show you? What what do you do when you talk to somebody? That's a relationship. This is why God created Adam, to have a relationship with him. He desired Adam to be a companion of his. Same way that here God desires, that Paul tells us, God desires people, mankind, his creation, not just to think of him as such a far-off God, because Paul said there in that verse, oh, he's not far from every one of us, which means that God's basically all around us, kind of everywhere we go. His essence, his, his presence is kind of like everywhere, Right? And But he, want, he doesn't want to just be outside. The Bible says he wants to come in. The Bible says that he wants us to have a relationship with him, and that's why we were created. Just think of it. The one who made all things, even my heart and yours, by whose unlimited power all things in creation are literally held together, who gives sustenance to all creation, whom the Bible says the heavens of heavens cannot contain, made you and I in a certain time, in a certain place, in the hopes, his hope, that we would grow for him so that we could find him, so that we could have an intimate, personal relationship with him, where we could speak with him and hear him just like Adam did in a very interactive and personal way. Wow, that is mind-blowing, isn't it? That is just humbling to me as a mankind. The creator of everything wants me to know him in a personal way. Wow. And not only is this unknown God not far from every one of us and hoping we will respond to his prompts for us to seek and grope him, but really he makes coming to have a relationship with him easy. Look at verse 28. For in him, as I said earlier, I mentioned this verse earlier, for in him we live and move and have our being. We don't even do anything without him. He gives us the animation to do all that we do, right? As some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. He tells them that it's because of him that any one of us, himself included, can't even move or do anything or act or walk or talk or do anything without God's power. Again, kind of echoing that 
Colossians 1.17, in him all things consist. Now, notice also there that Paul makes this unknown God, uh, Jesus Christ, a little bit more personal to them as he reminds them that their poets have even written to them about this unknown God, right? That would tell them, hey, even those that we've known in our own society, hey, even those people are admitting what this guy says is true about this unknown God. Wow. Even the idea, uh, end of verse 28, for we are his offspring, the literal creations, the literal sons and daughters of God in the physical flesh. That's awesome. Let's look on, keep going, verse 29. Paul continues to make the unknown God a little bit more personal. Uh, he says then, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, hey guys, since you're the men and women and children of the very living God, the God who created all everything, holds everything together, we ought not to think of that divine nature as like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art or men's devising. Hey guys, let's not think of the one who holds everything together as someone that we had to create an image of. Hey, you know, because their statues, they'd actually maybe even believe that that God would sometimes come down and inhabit that statue. Like that guy would come down there, Zeus would, would come down and kind of go into the statue and kind of like make the statue come alive or be there so that while they were talking to the statue, the, the, the God that they believed in would come in so that God would really hear them. How ridiculous. He says, hey, this God that I worship, your unknown God, he, you can't even put him in those things. He's, he's bigger than that. He's, he's grander and greater and, and bigger than that. Paul pointing out to them here that Jehovah, uh, what he had said in Exodus 20, 4-5, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And we know as what we said what he spoke to us from Isaiah, right? Uh, heavens of heavens can't contain me, let alone anything that you make for me. So let alone a statue. God's not going to dwell in a statue. Hey, guys, let, let's know this unknown God a little bit more. And next, Paul, in, in a golden move of divine grace, continues his progression of making the unknown God known by giving them some more characteristics of Jehovah, uh, Jesus Christ, that make him who he is and not just another one of their false Greek gods. Look at verses 30 through 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Hey, hey, God sees that, you know, he knows that you've been doing in ignorance. He knows that you're, you know, you've been worshiping these false gods and you just, you know, you just didn't know. But, but now, <laughs> but now he goes, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Hey, change your thinking. You're wrong. This is not what you should think God is. This is not, you do not worship the true God. Look at this unknown God. Repent. 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Known as the day of the Lord or the great and terrible day of the Lord that the Bible foretells of in the Old Testament of a man. We know this is Jesus uh, the Christ, right? That will judge the nations of the world as well as his own nation Israel in righteousness, as Paul says there. This is not such a good day for the world, by the way. It's going to be a lot of bad things going to happen that day, but nevertheless, it's coming in the future. Uh, Paul goes on to make their unknown God known, the rest of 31. He has given assurance of this all, all of the things that I just said, that this judgment of the right and righteousness by raising him from the dead. There's where he finally reveals the unknown God to them, even though he didn't say the name of their unknown God without saying his name. For there's only one person in all creation 
that's ever known to live and then die and then rise again the third day. And that would be Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Christ of God. God desires, God's desire is to fill the whole world with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And maybe sometimes you can't use his name, but just characteristics enough about him tell people who you're preaching. And that's how Paul preaches Jesus Christ to them here. Now, all they had, what do they do with what Paul said? Paul would have definitely spoken the name above all names to them. If they would have just let him, for there's no salvation in any other name. But sadly, look at how many of them respond to what Paul says here, making the unknown God known. Look at verses 32 through 34. Not everyone believes. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. How sad. God doesn't want that. Others, Well, others said, we will hear you again in this matter. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined them and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Some sadly mocked. God hates this response when he's reaching out to us. Others, they want to hear more just later. God's okay with this response because he's okay with the seeker as long as they were being truthful in what they were saying. Uh, Some people will tell you, right, they'll hear you later, but then they're just saying it to kind of get you off their backs, uh, last year, we did some outreaches uh, uh, to McKinney Street in Dallas, Texas, and, and I had several, three or four or five different people who I engaged with well, and we had a great conversation about Jesus Christ, and, and they said, well, you know, and I said, well, you know, and I would see that they were needing to go, and I said, well, you know, can I, can I talk to you about this, you know, topic, can I talk to you about Jesus Christ, you know, uh, can we talk again, yeah, yeah, here's my phone number. Yeah, here's my phone number. Well, people give out their cell phone number now. You know, the the reject button, uh, God has just shown me this recently. Uh, you're in control when you give out your cell phone number because really all there's, there's the ignore button when they call to anybody. If you don't want to talk to anybody, you give it your phone number. Yeah, I don't want to talk to you. Ignore every time they call. And so, therefore, some people just say, hey, later, 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 like those four or five people with me last year in McKinney Street because, you know, they don't want to hear me. And when I call, they just hit ignore. And God's not okay with that. While others here, the scripture says, repented. They believed and so turned to the resurrected Jesus Christ and joined Paul and his crew. And and now think, we know that he made the unknown God known. And here's how we know. They couldn't or wouldn't have believed or they couldn't have or wouldn't have joined Paul and his crew and what they stood for had they not known who he was talking about, right? If they didn't understand him to mean Jesus the Christ then why would they have repented and believed? Believed in what? Believed in a God of resurrection? No. They knew that this was Jesus Christ that he was speaking to them of. The piece of logic I just mentioned tells us that Paul successfully made their unknown God known to them, even though he didn't say their name. Praise God. God is so good and kind to these highly religious people, isn't he? He saw that they worshipped him as the unknown God without knowing him by name, and he brought his messenger Paul to them to make him known to them. That is awesome. God is an awesome God. There's a song written by a man named Rich Mullins. God, our God is an awesome God, and here God shows himself to be an awesome God. Uh, just think of a couple things that Paul revealed to us and, uh, and them of their unknown God known as Jesus Christ in this section of Scripture. One thing in particular that really 
Wow, is he an awesome God. Verses 26 and verses 27 specifically. And he, God, this is what Paul said to them, to make their unknown God known, has made from one blood every nation of men to do on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grow for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Meaning again that God Almighty made each human being for a certain time period in a certain place, month, year, city, home kind of thing, not to force those uh, his beloved create, created beings, which would be us, to worship him, not to force us to worship him like an evil-hearted mad scientist with some freak creation in their lab, but in the hopes, God's hopes, that we would grow for him and seek him and find him because, of course, for the purpose of us coming to have an intimate relationship with him, for that's why we were even created. That is super powerful awesome, ladies and gentlemen. Super powerful awesome. And consider this also. This coming and having a relationship with him also covers the second amazing detail of our loving and awesome God. This relationship he calls us to, all mankind to, if we'll seek him to find him, also saves us from the sin that separates us from God. The sin of the rebellion of our hearts against God to be our own masters and to reject him and his kingship over our, over our hearts. Now, I don't know where you're at today with this unknown God to the Athenians that Paul made known to them and us as Jesus Christ, or even if you believe in him or not. What matters is that now you know the unknown God is Jesus Christ, and now you know that, number one, as Paul said, he's not far from you. He's a whisper away. I heard it said, you're one step to God, or you're also one step away from God. It's just one step, though. One step to him to come to know him, or one step in the wrong direction, and with a purposeful heart, gets you to reject him again. So he's not far from every one of you, number one. Number two, he made you right where you were born geographically and in the time period that you were born and live in. Wow. Why did he do it? Number three, in the hopes, the, his hopes, that you would seek or grow for him so that you would find him. Number four, because he wants a relationship with you. And number five, an everlasting relationship with you forever and eternity after you die. So one now when you're alive and one forever when you die. And he didn't do it all because he's evil or he's taking away our choice or our free will and is forcing us to seek him and grow for him. He, does, he did it all because he hopes and desires that you'll seek him so that he can reveal himself to you and save you from the miserable life that you live now without him and to save you from an eternity spent without him forever in hell. You see, it's a choice. God reached out to all humanity about 2,000 years ago and showed or proved his love and, dev and devotion for us by sending Jesus Christ to the cross. And he became the propitiation for our sins, to make a propitiation for our sins so that we could be saved from our sin. He became sin that we who knew sin would be able to be saved from that sin. And he made a way of salvation for you and me. But now... It's your choice and my choice to either believe or keep believing in him and repent and continue to repent and continue to turn to him or turn to him for the first time. Uh, as Paul said in verse 30, to love him back and give him your heart and devotion and have, a kind, uh, and have the, the kind of relationship with him that he wants to have with you, as the Bible says. Or if you're in doubt 
and who this unknown God really is. Still, that's okay right now for the moment, because he doesn't want, but, but he doesn't want you to stay in your doubt. It's okay that you may doubt, but it's not okay that you stay in that doubt. Because he's made you for this time. He's made you in this place. Wherever, in whatever time it may be, it, it's April 22nd, 2018. But you may be listening to this message. It may be 2020. I don't know. It may be 2022. Christ may have returned and set up his thousand-year reign on the earth, or the Antichrist may be reigning, and it may be, who knows when that's going to be, and you may be listening to this message. Whatever time you live in, God made you for that time. So that, verse 27, you should seek him and, and grope for him, because if you would just seek him, and if you would just grope for him, then the Bible says that he'll help you find him, for he's not far from every one of you. I sought the Lord in this way uh, over 18 years ago now at this point in my life, April 22nd, 2018. And as I sought him, he made a way for me to come and know him. If you're in doubt, would you take Jesus Christ as his word, Matthew 7, 7, he says, ask and be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Would you start to pray today? Or would you start to ask God if he'd reveal himself to you? Would you ask God if he's real? Pray and ask him who he is. And would you seek and grow for him in the Bible? Hey, I, maybe you've never read the Bible. Pick it up. It's an amazing book and God will change your life if you seek him in it. And would you seek him with an honest heart as I did? And would you give him a chance to reveal himself to you? If you will... Just as he promised in his word to reveal himself to you personally, I also tell you, I promise you, he will reveal himself to you in a mighty personal way. Just don't give up. He's not a liar. Hold him to his word. He loves that. He loves it when we keep him and hold him to his word because he knows then we're, we're, we're taking him at what he said. Hey, I'm going to believe you what you said on this and then I'm going to see what you can do. And he wants to. Don't be concerned at all about him revealing himself to you after you truly seek him. Really, know that he will. What you should be more concerned with when you seek him is how you'll respond when he does. Many people, after God has revealed himself to them, they're just not ready. They're not ready to make that commitment. They're not ready to surrender their lives. But make sure... Uh, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. That means that he's calling everybody, but few are chosen because they're only chosen because the few will respond in the response that God's looking for. He's not asking for you to respond to religion or to works or to your own methods or your own madness. He's looking at you to respond in the way that Jesus Christ spoke of in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. He says this, if anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself. When God reveals himself to you, what he wants you to do is he wants you to surrender. He wants you to lay down your life. He wants you to surrender your life, to to submit your life to his control, to lay down, to stop fighting him, and to say, God, here I am. I'm ready. Here, take me. I don't want to live this way anymore. I need you. Jesus, save me. I'm tired of living my own way. I, I believe in you. Now I... I'm ready for you to be my Lord. I want you to save me. I want to follow you now. That means that you make a decision in your mind, in your heart, to say, I'm not going to live for myself and let myself rule me. 
anymore. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ, and I'm going to let Him be my Lord. And that's what that means, to surrender. Wave the white flag and say, all right, God, here's my heart. Take it. And then after that, it's most important that as you do that, that you continue, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That means go to his word and live the way his word says that he wants you to live. That's all part of the package. I don't just get married and say I do on day one and then walk away from my wife and go do whatever I want. No, no, no. I live with my new wife and we abide together and we live together in one home and we live together for one another. Right? And this is kind of how he continues on. It's, it's a progression. You surrender first. Then you take up your cross. You start living the ways he wants you to live. And then he says, follow me. Look in his word. How did you walk, Jesus? What did you do, Jesus? And then you follow the things that he tells you to do as far as how he lived, what he did, the teachings that he said. Do Hey, preach the gospel. Hey, do this. Hey, do that. Then it's important that we do that. 4 verse 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you want your own life now, and you want to be the ruler and the captain of your life now, then you're not going to respond to God with surrender. You're going to respond to God with, hey, i got my own life to live. I'm good. But whoever loses his life or surrenders his life for my sake means surrender to me. Make me your Lord in your heart of hearts. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You'll find eternal life. When he comes to you and reveals himself to you, will you surrender and give up? Lay down the lordship rule that you have over your own life and grant him the right that he is due because he gave up his life on the cross and give him the place of master in your life. I hope you will surrender. I hope you'll seek. And then when he comes, I hope that you'll surrender. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your grace. Father God, we thank you, Lord God, that your word says that you are the God you are. Father God, I, I look at all the other so-called gods of all peoples of mankind and the Hindu gods and the Muslim God and the Buddhist way of thinking and all the ways in which these other peoples that they worship their gods and what their gods say. And Lord, there, there's not one of those gods, Lord God, that truly loves those people. Oh, those guys demanding and harsh and strict and there's no hope of eternal life and there's maybe this or there's maybe that or, well, you know, if I'm angry on the day that you, even though, even though you were a devout Muslim the whole, your whole life, even though I may be angry on the day that you die and I, you know what, I said, no, that's it, I'm just in a bad mood, then, then, then he can turn them away then. There's no guarantee. They just are constantly hoping, never knowing for sure if they can have eternal life. God, well, you... Lord God, you, Jesus said, I came to give them life and, and life abundantly. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Lord God, we know, Lord God, if we're yours, Lord God, and we continue in you, Lord, then we will have eternal life forever. Thank you so much, Lord God. I pray that you would draw the people. Please, God, draw the peoples of the world to yourself again today. Continue, Lord God, to draw the peoples of the world to yourself again today. And I pray, dear God, that you'd move on their hearts as you do. Lord God, move on their hearts and show them how wonderful you are, just like you did in our scripture today, like Paul did to the Areopagites, Lord, or the Areopagus people, to the Athenians. Lord, and I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them in that way, and that they would be the ones today, multitudes today, will come to know you. Even those that are listening today, that they would surrender and, and give up their lives because you gave up your life on the cross. Thank you, Lord God. 
We love you and praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name.